We return this morning to Paul's letter to the Colossians. We will be looking at chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. So Colossians chapter 1, 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery of which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come today once again to your word, we thank you for this great mystery of Christ, which though hidden for, hidden for ages has now been revealed to us, your people. Pray that we would all be comforted again at the hearing of this gospel, and that because of this gospel, you would work in us love for you and love for our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In history and in legend, there are lots of stories about important messages being delivered at great difficulty and high cost. One such legend gave rise to the idea of running a marathon. In 490 BC, a battle took place at a place called Marathon in Greece. The battle was a Greek victory over the Persians. Well, the legend... The battle was historic, but the legend is that after that battle, there was a man named Philippides who spotted a Persian warship changing course and heading towards Athens, the Greek capital, likely going there to try to deceive the city into believing that the Persians had won and thus seizing control. So as the legend has it, Philippides ran all the way to Athens without stopping a distance of approximately 26.2 miles, burst into the assembly hall at Athens, screamed, we have won, and then fell over dead. 
What should his death tell us about marathon running? I'll leave that to you to decide. But this now popular recreational activity of marathon running, it was born out of delivering important news at great cost. You could think of other more modern examples or Examples from the history of this country, like Paul Revere's midnight ride to Lexington and Concord to warn of an impending British attack. You can think of the Pony Express, in which riders on horseback delivered the mail across the wild frontier before telegraph and railroads were available for the task. Those are difficult and unconventional and even dangerous ways to deliver messages. But some messages are worth the difficulty, and the cost. So today, as we continue in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we hear about another message that has been and is being delivered with great difficulty and often at great cost all over the world. And that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It had been delivered to this church in Colossae and to others, and it has even found its way to us, though often at great cost, and through great struggle. Now Paul tells us many things in this passage about this gospel, this good news of Christ, and the difficulties that he and others have gone through to get it where it needs to go. But this message is worth it. Because the gospel is, after all, the most important message that can be delivered. It's more important than the message of the news of a battle or whatever the Pony Express was delivering in the mail. It is the singular message that saves. It is the only message that offers eternal life to those who hear and believe. And so Paul is laying out here an apologetic, a defense of his ministry, and for the ministry of the gospel more broadly. Why he does what he does, and why the Colossians should continue to do what they do. And so today we will look at this defense, this apologetic from Paul, in three points. First, we will look at Paul's stewardship, which is what we see in chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. Second, we see Paul's struggle in verses 129 through 2.2. And then finally, Paul's sureness in 2.3 to 2.5. So we have Paul's stewardship, his struggle, and his sureness. So first we will look at Paul's stewardship, starting in verse 124. So in verse 24, Paul talks about his suffering. If you're at all familiar with the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, you know that he did not have it easy most of the time. Just for a quick rundown of his sufferings, we can look at his own accounting, which is in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 21 through 29. You can turn over there quickly if you'd like. There Paul writes, actually verse 22, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two through 29. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So he was beaten with a whip, a whip that had like shards of glass and metal that was meant to tear up the flesh. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Now that is quite a laundry list of suffering. Imprisonments, beatings, shipwrecks, robbers, hunger, thirst, deprivation. Even as I mentioned last time, this letter to the Colossians was written from a Roman prison cell. This isn't how most of us probably envision the Christian life or Christian ministry going. How much of Christian evangelism says something like, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There is a sense in which this is true. Jesus does love us. He does have a plan that ultimately and eternally works for our good and his glory. However, that wonderful plan might follow a path of suffering and difficulty. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to serve Christ, it may cost you. It may cost you dearly. You might lose friends. You might be alienated from family. You might be marginalized in culture and society. You might suffer material loss, loss of employment, on and on the list goes of what could be lost for Christ. But in verse 24, Paul also writes that he rejoices in his sufferings. He also adds that he fills up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, what does that mean? That can be a little bit confusing. Does this mean that Christ's suffering, which was for our salvation, is lacking something? It is missing something? No, it doesn't. Christ suffered and died once for all, for the sins of all of his people. So what then is Paul saying? I think the best way to take this is in terms of the church as Christ's body. Because the church is Christ's body, there is a real sense in which the suffering of the church is Christ's own suffering. It's a marker of the church's inseparable union with Christ. And Paul knew this from the very beginning when he was called on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. What were Christ's words to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not people, not the church, but why are you persecuting me? To persecute Christ's church is to persecute Christ. And to suffer for Christ's church is to suffer as Christ's body. As we suffer with Christ in our union with him, it assures us. Because if we are united with Christ in his suffering, we know that we will be united with him in his resurrection. We will be raised as he has been raised. We will be glorified as he has been glorified. But Paul further fleshes out the practical implications of this suffering in verse 25. He is suffering for the church as a minister to her. 
Now, he did not appoint himself to this task. You might remember that Paul's conversion on that Damascus road wasn't him making some pained decision after much deliberation to follow Christ. He wasn't singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. No. Christ came to Paul on the Damascus road as he was on his way to go and round up and arrest and persecute Christians and made him an offer he literally could not refuse. He went instantly from persecutor to preacher. And Paul further describes in verse 25 this that God has given him as a stewardship. Now what does that mean? What is this stewardship? The way we usually use stewardship in our day, it has to do with how we use money, how we use the resources that God has given us. And that's related, but that's not exactly what Paul is getting at here. So what is a steward? A steward is a person who basically in the historic sense, managed a large estate, usually for someone rich, someone noble. A steward was basically a butler, someone who would keep the day-to-day operations of the household in order so that the head of household, being a noble or ruler or some other kind of important person, can focus on more pressing matters. So a steward is a person with delegated authority, from the ruler. The steward can't just do whatever he wants. He can't go spend all the ruler's money or, you know, send the family away or do anything bizarre or out of line or that sort. The steward is accountable to the ruler and must make decisions of which the ruler would approve. And this is the kind of authority that Christian ministers, including Paul, have. It is a ministerial authority, the authority to do the wishes and proclaim the message of our king. We don't have legislative or magisterial authority, the authority to make our own law and impose our own agenda. Now, Paul makes this more clear at the end of verse 25. This stewardship is to fulfill the word of God. He goes on further to expand What word specifically in verse 26? The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Throughout the Bible, more and more of God's word and will is revealed, starting all the way back at creation, culminating, reaching its apex with the revelation of Christ. Christ is the highest point of revelation. Last year, when I served as an intern up in Anchorage, Alaska, on a clear day, we could look off to the north and we could see Denali, formerly known as Mount McKinley. It is the highest mountain in North America, over 20,000 feet high. It was over 100 miles away, and yet it was clearly visible and loomed large as long as the clouds weren't in the way. This is like where Christ stands in Scripture, He is the apex. He is the high point. Everything before him points forward to him in types and shadows. The Gospels tell us of his coming, his person and work. The epistles like this one to the Colossians and the Revelation look back to him, telling us what we need to know and do in light of his person and work. This Gospel is the mystery that was hidden. In the Old Testament, they only knew Christ in a shadowy form. Tonight, we'll begin looking at the book of Jonah, and we'll see one such type there. 
But it would not have been super clear to the people at the time what exactly Christ was going to do and how it was going to look. But they had through sacrifices, through ceremonies, through other pictures that they were given, the reality of Christ even in this shadowy form. But verse 27 talks about the extent to which this revelation has now been made known. To them, that is the saints of verse 26, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So under the Old Covenant, the Jews were God's chosen people. There were processes and mechanisms by which one outside could come in. So, for instance, you could think of people like Ruth, who was a Moabite. She was allowed to come in and join the people of God. But in general, the people of God were limited to this one particular nation and one particular place. Part of this coming of Christ, the fulfillment of these types and shadows, is this radically inclusive gospel for Jews and Gentiles alike. What was a mystery is now known in the open. In fact, it is known all over the world. I mean, look at where we are. We are in Hamill, South Dakota. None of the Old Testament Israelites would even know that North America existed, much less this area. And yet the gospel has found its way here. And Christ is in us, and we have the hope of glory. And what a great hope it is. We may suffer in this life, but we have this undaunted, unwavering Christian confidence that whatever we endure in this life, we have the hope of glory. We have Christ by his Holy Spirit living in us, teaching us, indwelling us, sanctifying us. We are so united to him that our suffering is his suffering. And ultimately, whatever we face in this life In the end, we will behold Christ, and we will live with him forever. So Paul's stewardship, his job, his responsibility given by God, is to proclaim this gospel to everyone without distinction. But as we see in verse 28, this proclamation of Christ has a purpose and a goal. Warning every man, because the terror of God's wrath against sin is certainly something to be warned against, and teaching every man in all wisdom. And it has a goal, to present everyone as perfect in Christ. Now what does this perfection look like? It relates to what we looked at last week. The ultimate goal of Christ's work in us is to present us holy and blameless on that last day. We are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. God renews our mind and our wills and creates a new heart and new desires and the new man in us. And this is reflected in how we now live. We don't achieve perfection in this life. We still will continue to deal with sin and its consequences. But ultimately, we are being fitted for perfection in the life to come. So, we have seen Paul's stewardship in the verses so far of this glorious gospel of Christ, which is the hope of glory. But now we turn to our second point. And don't worry, the last two points are shorter. Which is Paul's struggle. In verse 29, Paul says, To this end, so what we've looked at so far, this stewardship of the gospel ministry, to this end I labor. 
Because Christ is the hope of glory, the hope transcendent of this world, he is worth proclaiming even at great cost. We also see here in verse 29 that Paul is not struggling by his own effort. He does so by God working in him. This is the Holy Spirit working in Paul, the same spirit that indwells and empowers each of us. Isn't it comforting and reassuring to know that when Christ calls us to work, he empowers us by his spirit to do it? It doesn't mean that it won't be difficult. It doesn't mean that we may be stretched beyond our limits and beyond our means, but we know that we have supernatural help. So Paul in verse 29 has introduced his struggle for gospel proclamation, and then in the opening two verses of chapter 2, he explains it. It would be easy for this Colossian church, as well as the nearby Laodicean church, who have never seen or met Paul, as we see here, to get this letter from him and think, okay, but why do you care? I said it before, but I'll mention it again. Paul likely wrote this letter in the final imprisonment before his death. It's widely believed that he was being held at the infamous Mamertine prison in Rome which this prison was essentially a big hole in the ground. It was dark, it was dank, when it would rain, water and whatever the water would pick up on the way would run down. It was probably infested with pests. This was not a good situation to be in. In fact, within a few years of writing this letter, Paul would be dead. And yet Paul's first concern is the church. Be that the churches he knows personally and has been to, or even this one's like Colossae and Laodicea that he is not. In verse 2, he describes what he wants these churches to have, what they'll be left with even as Paul cannot be with them. First, he wants their hearts to be encouraged. These churches are facing false teachings, this Colossian heresy. He wants them to be strengthened to face the difficulties present and ahead. He wants them to know that he cares and that he is concerned for them, that he prays for them. There can be a tendency as Christians when we face difficulty, when we face the trials of life, trials in the church, to think that we are alone and no one cares about what we're going through. This is one of the lies that our enemy uses to lead us astray and to harm us. For we are never alone in Christ. Now, Paul wants these churches to be confident of their faith and confident of his concern for them and for their hearts to be encouraged as a result. If they are weak, if they are despairing, the false teaching around them might start to look pretty good. But Paul is warning them to remain steadfast. Now, second, he presses them to be knit together in love for one another. You might remember back to our first message last week, the emphasis he placed there on the love of the saints. In fact, he'll come back to this again later in chapter 3, where he says that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is painted as a contrast to that creeping Colossian heresy. In fact, later in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 2, some of the Colossian heretics there insisting on asceticism, the process of self-deprivation, you deny yourself worldly pleasures, you deny yourself uh, certain 
foods, drinks, whatever. Others are insisting on observing certain festivals, other legalistic practices, and some even going so far as to worship angels. Because of this, because of these false teachings, these false teachers are disqualifying one another, and they're disqualifying, trying to disqualify those in the church. They're conceited, they're believing that their version of the teaching is the secret sauce, it's what everyone else needs, and if anybody won't get on board with this, they are to be condemned. But in contrast to this, Paul was insisting on love. Now third, he wants, Paul wants to remind the Colossians of where they are going. Paul is struggling so that they may reach the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Paul wants them to believe fully and confidently what God has revealed, this gospel, and that it is for them. The Colossian heretics were trying to undermine the truth and the Colossians' assurance of their faith. They may have said things like, yeah, Paul and his friends, they, they teach their stuff, but our stuff is better. And in fact, our stuff is true and Paul's isn't. Well, Paul has already told them, the riches and glory of this mystery is Christ in them, the hope of glory. That's what they want. Not asceticism, not angel worship, but Christ is where they need to turn. Not these other things that cannot save and cannot provide this hope. So now, after seeing Paul's stewardship and Paul's struggle, we turn to our third and final point, Paul's sureness. So someone who is reading this letter from Paul who might have been tempted by the Colossian heresy or some other false teaching, they might wonder, is what Paul is offering really enough? I mean, do these other teachers actually have some value? Is there something worth considering there? Well, in verse 3, Paul continues on that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. False teachers and false teachings usually promise some kind of wisdom, some kind of knowledge. One of the most destructive heresies of the early church was known as Gnosticism, from the Greek word for knowledge that's actually used here in verse 3 of chapter 2. The Colossians were probably being told that they needed some secret knowledge that these Colossian heretics were providing. There's always false teachers who feel like they need to sell you that secret sauce, the something they have that you don't, that you need. Growing up, as I did in Wyoming, it was a rather frequent occurrence to encounter missionaries from the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They'd come to my house, or they would be on campus at my colleges, and they would always want to talk. And as a Christian, I would usually entertain them, at least for a while, because I wanted to tell them the truth. Now, at the beginning, when you start talking to these guys, they talk a lot about the Bible, and Jesus, and it sounds at first like things that we could agree with, things that we could get on board with. But wait, there's more. They get into the Book of Mormon. They get into their additional teachings. And it becomes clear that there are secret things they want us to have that they believe we don't. Things like 
We need to have temple-sealed marriages so we can eventually have our own planets and be our own gods and populate our planets. They really do teach and believe that. We need to have these additional scriptures, these teachings of Joseph Smith. That's the secret sauce. That's where the action really is. That's what they really want us to have. Well, similarly, the Colossian heretics, they were probably teaching some kind of secret knowledge. Yeah, you have the Bible. Yeah, you have Jesus. But you need something more. That's where it's really at. Paul was saying, no. In Christ, you have all that you need. All the wisdom and knowledge required for your salvation. We're never going to outsmart God. God has given us a simple yet profound gospel of a suffering son. Now, the world is never going to find it good enough. In Paul's discourse in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, he calls the word of the cross foolishness to those who are perishing. It's never going to be good enough for the lost, for those who God has not enlightened. The world always wants something more or something better. But for those who are being saved, this gospel is the very power of God. And so, people of God, in Christ, we have all that we need. We do not need to add to him. We don't need secret knowledge. We don't need the wisdom of the world to mix in with it. And in fact, we are in great and perilous error if we do. Paul wants the Colossians to know this. He wants us to know this. The Holy Spirit has preserved this word for us so that we might know it too. In verse 4, he makes this very clear. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. These heretics and false teachers in Colossae, they were persuasive. And the false teachers of our day can be very persuasive. They're good at what they do. And they can offer things that look good. And they sound really smart. And they sound really cool. And they sound really helpful but they are deluding. They are deceiving. They offer a way that seems right, but its end is death. Only Christ, the whole Christ, the Christ taught in the gospel can and does save. Anything else is deviation and destruction. We are not to be deceived We are to cling to the true gospel and not entertain lies. In verse 5, Paul concludes this section with more words of encouragement. For though I am absent in the flesh, because remember, he's not with them. He's never been with them. He is in prison and he's not going to get out. Yet I am with you in spirit. Although he's far away, he hasn't been to their church He shares a union and communion and fellowship with them that only a brother or sister in Christ can have. For they all together are part of the church universal. They have one Lord, one faith, one baptism together. Paul probably taught Epaphras, this pastor of the Colossian church we introduced last time, And so he is something of a spiritual grandfather, if you will, for them. And so sharing this union and communion with them, he is rejoicing to see their good order and firmness of faith. 
Now, what does he mean by good order? We have presbytery coming up, so it's always good to be reminded of good order. Paul's main discussion on order is something he writes to the Corinthians. They had chaos in their church. People were committing gross sins of sexual immorality. There was chaos in worship. Everybody wanted to speak in tongues and prophesy at the same time, and it was nonsense. It was chaos. And they were not showing love for one another. And so in 1 Corinthians 14.40, Paul exhorts the Corinthians that they ought to do everything in proper order. And that's the same word used here in Colossians 2.5. What the Corinthians failed to do, the Colossians were doing well. They were running their church well in an organized fashion. Their doctrine and their worship and their minister, Epaphras, were sound. Things were generally being done the right way, and Paul was encouraging them to hold fast and continue in these ways against the false teaching. But he's also rejoicing in the firmness of their faith. He's already rejoiced in their faith earlier in chapter 1, but here he does so again to reinforce the point. They have heard and believed the true gospel. They have received all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, who is their hope of glory. They're in a good place. He's telling them to stay there. In fact, they have the true faith. They have the hope of glory in the gospel of Christ. Why would they turn to anything else? This gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, it's the same message to us and for us as it was to the Colossians. False teachers will come. They'll say they know better. They'll say they have the new and the cool thing that you need. The philosophies of the world will come and say that they are smarter. The trends and fads of the world will come and say that they are more interesting and more exciting. But only in the gospel, only in this message of salvation of Jesus Christ is there the hope of glory. So as Paul rejoiced in the firmness of the Colossians' faith, may our faith be firm as well, grounded in Christ and in none other. So we've seen today Paul's stewardship, his struggle, and his sureness. Paul was convinced by this message of Jesus Christ, even if it meant suffering and struggling and enduring all the difficulties of this life and this ministry that he had. He believed that the Colossians had this too, but he wanted them to remain. And so here comes the question for us. Paul was sure of Christ. He was sure of the Colossians' faith. Are you sure of Christ? Is he your hope of glory? Are you trusting in his suffering, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and for everlasting life? Whatever else the world is offering you isn't going to cut it on the last day. There's no hope of glory in anything that they are selling. Perhaps you are in Christ, but you are being besieged by false teachings or doubts. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Whatever else anyone is selling you isn't going to get you that. And so hold fast to Christ and live. Christ is our hope. Christ is our message. Let us never forget that. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for this word of your gospel. We thank you that in Christ, who is in us, we have the hope of glory. I pray that we would all hold fast and cling to this truth, that we would be faithful to take this message to a lost and dying world that so badly needs it. I pray that we would remain steadfast and firm against the spirit of this age and all of the attacks on the church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.